Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Manoj Reitata, who is head of the South Asian Forum of the UK Evangelical Alliance and director of Instant Apostle Christian Publishing House and a property entrepreneur. He's had a very varied career, having been a teacher, a BAFTA award-winning TV writer and a highly successful multi-million property entrepreneur. Though raised as a Hindu, in 2008 he became a Christian following the miraculous healing of his young son and went on to write the book Filthy Rich, the property tycoon who struck real gold, published this year. And he now directs the course Discovering Jesus Through Asian Eyes for the Evangelical Alliance South Asian Forum. Manoj, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be speaking to you, have this opportunity to speak with you, because I, I said to you when I contacted you a few weeks ago, I heard you speak at the New Wine Christian Conference. This is, I think it's sometime, I think it's might even been last year, actually, it's quite some time ago. And um, what I didn't tell you is that, uh, rather strangely, I took one of your cards after the talk, and I put it in my travel Bible case, and then I forgot where I put it. So it wasn't until this summer, we went abroad and I had occasion to use my little travel Bible again, that I opened up this little pouch and I saw your card again, and that reminded me to get in touch with you. So uh, it's great to be speaking with you after all this time. No, it's fantastic. Lovely to be here. So obviously I gave there a very, very brief introduction to your, your life and work, which we'll be filling out in much more detail as we go along. Um, and I guess really what we have to speak about today fits into two main areas, really. We have this Discovering Jesus Through Asian Eyes course, which I'm very interested to ask you about and share with listeners, because obviously that's what you were talking about at New Wine when I, I first heard you. But we also have your life story, your life story so far, of course, um, which is also very fascinating and I think perhaps we should start there because that very much sets the scene for your whole approach to Christian ministry. So could we go right back to, well almost the beginning, when you were a boy? How would you describe your upbringing in those years uh, before you and your family went to live in Kenya? Well we had a very happy childhood. I'm a twin. My sister lives in New Zealand now very, very happy childhood. I suppose my earliest memories of my childhood is uh, relates to faith. My father uh, is a devout Hindu and was a devout Hindu back then when I was growing up in Watford um, in England. And we used to be taken to the Hare Krishna temple every week or every other week. And so I grew up in this environment where faith was important. For my father, I suppose what really grabbed his attention was, you know, the big fascination in Hinduism in the 60s and the 70s. You saw bands like the the Beatles uh, embracing um, the Hindu teaching. Uh, it was in the music. It was on the TV. And my father found himself drawn to this religion. And what um, cultural background do, do your parents come from? My parents are from South Asia. Their parents would have been born in uh, India in the area of Gujarat, and we're part of the South Asian community that migrated from India to East Africa in search of work um, for economic reasons. Uh, and then, as you'll be aware, a lot of the Asian South Asians moved to the UK following the issues in Uganda in 1972, and also in Kenya in the late 60s. And so that's how we've ended up here in the UK. And would you say that back in those days that you yourself and your sister had a, a kind of Hindu faith at the time? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's all that we we knew. We were we grew up with the faith. Every I say almost every Hindu household would have a temple somewhere in the house, a little shrine, maybe in a in the corner of a room. We used to go to the uh, temple regularly, as I mentioned, and other religious uh, festivals. Yeah. And you say, I can't remember where I read it actually, but where, I think it's the, the Christianity Today article actually, that's right, uh, that it was actually a corner of your bedroom was made into a small temple and your father had placed these little Hindu gods or something and, and worshipped them then. So, I mean, what did you understand those gods to be that were in your bedroom? I don't think I really um, reflected on that much as a child other than the fact that what was clear to me was the fact that for my parents, God was important. Um, yes. That God wasn't something that you just did at the weekend. God was important every day. Faith was important. And so I just grew up in that environment accepting that God was real. There was never any doubt in my mind about the existence of God. Right. So this wasn't just a cultural fascination by your family. This was something deeply felt. That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Would you say there were any things in your upbringing that inclined you towards the things that you've done later in life, like teaching and, and business and writing and those kinds of things? I suppose what happened for me, we moved out to East Africa when I was nine years old, uh, which came as a bit of a surprise. But there were economic issues here in the UK. And so my father went out to Kenya with us all to join up with his brother in the family business. And it was in Kenya that I was enrolled in a Christian school. And I first heard the Christian message mm. and I was fascinated by it, deeply fascinated because I'd, I couldn't understand the Christian message of God, of the creator dying for the created. It totally, totally blew me away. And for a number of years, I found myself really drawn to the Christian faith, um, going to Bible study during the school lunch times, and I had a Bible that I would occasionally read. But over time, I found that actually there were two things that were pulling me in different directions in my childhood. One was this, you know, fascination with Christianity because it felt so real in that school. When I used to see the headmaster singing hymns to Jesus, it was like he was experiencing something. So, so I was really, really drawn to Christianity. But at the same time, the things hadn't really worked out for us in East Africa. My father had gone out there to make money, but the reality was that he wasn't making money. And my mother was having to slave away in the kitchen, baking cakes and selling them on and running cookery classes. So there were these two things in my life. There was faith. And the other aspect was the importance of money to have security. And I felt more drawn over time to pursue money so that I wouldn't have the same problems that my parents went through. And thus my fascination in business hmm. came about. Right. But you'd nevertheless had this foundation that was, was growing at that time in your interest in Christianity. And uh, it was obviously very real for you at that moment. But I'm just wondering what your family reaction was to that. I mean, they must have seen this in you, this fascination. Yes, they did see this fascination. I used to come home and used to debate very regularly with my father. And that's one of the reasons why the the Hindu temple in our house got moved by my father into my bedroom. And he would come at various times. Well, 
very early times in the morning and he would switch on the lights and start praying loudly and that was you that was at a time when we were debating ferociously and right. it was really um for me it was all about grace and that was my line of argument to my father well look here is jesus he's died for all of us not just certain sections of society for every tribe every nation and if we believe we are saved he'll forgive our sins but for my father, it was his line of argument was works-based, that we had to earn our salvation. And so that's where we had differences in opinions. Right. I must admit, I did wonder why he would put this temple in your bedroom, but that, that, that explains everything now. So he, presumably he was concerned that you were going to miss out on your relationship with God because you were being, well, theologically lazy about it through your your newfound interest in Christianity. You weren't working hard at your relationship with God. Yes, the thing is, my father's a lovely man, but on this point of religion, uh, it had sparked something in him. And I, and I can understand where he was coming from, because I assume, I suppose his perception was that, was I rejecting everything about the South Asian culture? Hmm. You know, our upbringing, um, our background, the faith of our grandparents, and I suppose as a as a Christian today, no, I don't reject South Asian culture, you know, very much a part of the culture, but it's just my faith that has changed. And so I suppose that's what really triggered those heated debates. Yes, and I guess that debate that you had back in those days has actually formed your ministry now, or, or helped to form it, in the, that clash there, that faith-culture possibility of a clash anyway, that you actually deny it's not necessary for there to be a clash. That's forming the way that you actually approach ministry these days. Well, that's right. And I mean, what's wonderful is going around the country and seeing an array of different churches that do church in different ways. I mean, there's a there's a lovely church not far from where I live. It almost feels a bit like walking into a temple in the sense that, you know, you take off your shoes as you go in. Um, the food that they serve is vegetarian food, which you typically find in a in a Hindu temple. And so for many people that are coming to faith in Jesus from a South Asian background and having gone to the temple, they would go to this church and feel very, very comfortable here. Mm. But there is no compromise in terms of what is taught. It is Bible teaching. And it is a it is a belief that Jesus is the only way. Well, fascinating indeed. And we'll we'll come on to talk about more of that. Of course, I want to talk about the course and your your general approach to ministry in a few minutes. Um, so just continuing with your life story, because you came back to the UK in the mid 80s, and I believe you went to a Catholic school, but that was a very different experience, was it, from the school you had over there in Africa? Yes, it was different. When I look back on my life now, it seems to me, you know, that God was chasing me at various points in my life at the end of primary school I turned my back on on the Christian faith because the question I had was what does this have to do with living in the real world where there are financial problems my parents are struggling financially I'm going to pursue money I'm not going to have the same problems and issues that they've faced but then here I was back in the UK coming face to face with the God of the Bible. And so I went to Mass every Sunday. But I never experienced anything in the way that I experienced something at the school in Kenya. And this is nothing against Catholicism at all. But we went to Mass every Sunday, but nobody really preached the Christian message to me. 
And I suppose that's what really excited me in my primary school was a headmaster who was passionate about the message of the Bible, about the grace of God, the love of God, and that we can have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus. And that's what I heard and that's what I felt in the primary school, but I didn't experience that in a secondary school. But there may well have been others that did encounter something, but not something that I experienced. But there I was every Sunday going into to Mass and seeing the cross before me every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So your initial experience there of being caught up by the vision of Christianity wasn't really supported properly when you came back to the UK. So presumably this interest in money and uh, securing your future became your, your main focus. Although, following what you say about your life story, you didn't go straight into the business world. You went into, you were interested in economics and then then you went into English and drama. So why did you take that particular turn? Well, it definitely wasn't my plan to go into those areas. Well, I suppose there was an interest in studying English when I was doing my sixth form A-levels. But I opted to go for economics at university because I felt that that would be the appropriate subject to get me to my goal of one day making uh, some money. But in all honesty, I didn't really enjoy economics. If it was a business A-level, I think I would have really, really enjoyed it. But economics, I didn't. And I didn't do very well in it. And so the reality was that I didn't get the grades to go and study economics at university. I ended up in the clearing system, ended up at Bangor University. That was the one university that would take me. And I opted to study English there because that was a subject I enjoyed the most out of the three subjects I was studying at A-level. And you did make some success, didn't you, out of this move into the arts because then, amazingly, you became a playwright and had virtually immediate success. I mean, was that something that you was in the back of your mind to achieve or did that just kind of happen to you? Well, I suppose two things happened when I became a teacher. I started to ask myself questions. Is this what my life is going to be like? Um, I felt that I wanted to be in business and what attracted me in business was risk taking. And at that particular time when I was having these thoughts about my future, I separated with a long-term girlfriend. And that separation caused me to return back to my childhood dreams. It's like they'd been buried for a while and they started to return. And so I just decided I'm going to take some risks. And so I did. I moved out of English teaching into drama teaching, although I didn't really have any training in drama teaching. And then I thought to myself, well, look, why don't I have a go at becoming a director, which sounded crazy. But I'd gone to a primary school that had taught me uh, the school motto there was fortune favors the brave. And I'd taken that with me. So to a lot of people saying, well, look, I'm just going to try and become a professional writer, they think, well, this guy's absolutely crazy. What what experience has he got? But I completely believed that I could do this, completely. So I had <laughs> I had faith in it. I, I ended up still carrying on with not teaching, but some consultancy work in the school while I did a master's in drama and theatre studies at Royal Holloway. And towards the end of the course, I had an opportunity to direct something. By that point, I had a new girlfriend who later became my wife, and together we wrote a play about a group of British Asian kids and the struggles they had growing up in the UK, being caught between West and Eastern cultures. 
we took that to Edinburgh Festival and it won a fringe first. Yeah. That, that, and, was, uh, that was your first play, was it? That's right. It was the first play that yeah. we'd ever written. It was in a church hall in Edinburgh. There must be thousands of productions going on during the festival. And I took a group of, well, some professional actors that were out of work and others who had probably done some acting in school or college. It was a bit of a laugh. I gave that perception to the actors. Well, look, let's just have a good time. But deep down, I really wanted this to be successful. And so I put them through a lot. Was it a great play? No, it wasn't. But it was about the timing. You'll recall the the TV series Goodness Gracious Me came out. Oh, yes. yes. Must have been a a year or two years before that, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. But there was an interest in Asian culture. And so we put on a play that talked about Asian culture and people flocked to see it. Mm. And you mentioned timing in there. And this is something that comes out a a number of times in uh, the various things I've read about you, that you concentrate on getting the timing exactly right. And out of that, with your confidence, of course, comes some success. And when we look at this situation you've just been describing, one might think, well, yes, you must have felt very successful. You must have felt like you were on top of the world. I mean, after this, of course, you did this uh, children's TV series and then you were awarded a BAFTA, I understand for that so you must have felt that everything was going absolutely wonderful is, is that right did you feel that way no i didn't actually i remember mm. there was that moment i think it was either at the bafta awards ceremony we won a bafta for this tv series that i wrote with my wife but it was also nominated the tv series was nominated for an international emmy and i can't remember exactly where it was whether it was at the bafta ceremony or the emmy ceremony but i remember for a moment being still And I suppose in that single moment, reflecting on this whole thing of winning an award. And the reality was, the conclusion I I came to in that moment was, well, it didn't really make me happy. It wouldn't have made a difference if I'd have won the award or not won the award, because I didn't feel it was my calling. I didn't feel it was my purpose. And so, yes, it was great to have something on the mantelpiece. But a lot of people have come to my house and said, oh, wow, you won a BAFTA. Why haven't you told us about it? I haven't told many people about it because it wasn't that important to me. So I didn't really feel on top of the world, no. So if you have that sense of, well, this really isn't my calling, there's something else I should be doing, then how is it then you turned to getting into the property business in such a big way? I I mean, I would have thought at the time, you'd have thought to yourself, well, even that won't give me this inner sense of peace or a sense of real purpose in my life. So why did you turn to the property business in quite such a committed way? Well, I turned to the property business, first of all, because I bought a house. And it was meant to just be a house that I would live in. Although I had done a lot of research and I wanted it to be the right house to ensure that at some point it would be worth a bit of money and it would help me to move on in life. Well, it was all about timing. It was 1996 and we all know what happened towards the late 90s and the early 2000s, the property prices started to rise at an exponential rate. So I bought this house in an area of Wandsworth where not many people wanted to buy houses. In fact, this house had been on the market for 18 months and nobody had put an offer on it. But I liked it because it had bags of space. Yes, it wasn't in East Putney. Yes, it was close to the Wandsworth one-way system. So it was a bit noisy, but there was a lot of space and it seemed like it had a lot of potential. Within a couple of years, Developers started to move in and to chop up the houses into flats, and I found myself selling the house for more than double. 
And that's when I started to think, well, now here's my opportunity. And so I quickly, very, very quickly moved into investing in buy-to-let properties. I would rent out and every now and then I would sell one and then buy another one. And so that's how I found myself going into the whole property world. And it became a highly successful move for you, didn't it? Because I'm picking up here again from, oh, it's a piece in the Telegraph, which at least implies that you were doing deals that were 35 million in, in one day. Is that right? Yes, it, it went utterly crazy within a very, very short amount of time. I suppose within four to five years, we had set up a company which was trading over probably about 70 million pounds. How did we get there? Well, I moved out of buying these buy-to-let properties and renting them out, and I moved into investing in off-plan properties, properties that I could buy from plans. So I could go to a a well-known property developer like Barrett's or Taylor Wimpy, and I could exchange on some flats and then trade on those flats to investors. So essentially, I'd be assigning the contracts on. But I wasn't doing this in, in small numbers. I quickly started to do this in, in hundreds. So I'd go to a developer and say, well, look, I want to buy your whole block. You've got 100 flats that's being built on this land. I want to exchange contracts on all of them. But give me the right to sell on these contracts to other people. And uh, I suppose it was a win-win situation at the time. The builders were pleased because they were able to sell 100 flats in one go. And they would get some income, well, 5% or 10% of the value of the property on exchange of contracts. So they would get that and that would give them the basis to secure probably better funding arrangements with their banks. And I was able to get these properties for a discount and then to sell them on to investors. And at a time when the property prices were rising and so many people had their house, but they wanted a buy-to-let investment, So it was all about timing. We were able to sell sometimes a whole block within a matter of of a few days to investors. Wow. But also about research as well, because again, in that article in the Telegraph, one of the pieces of advice you give, this is from 2005, a little quote here. Don't just buy in an area where properties are cheap. Study the potential for growth. Look where government and EU money is due to be targeted and follow it. So it certainly implies that you were looking at perhaps rundown areas that were receiving public subsidy and you were going with the opportunities that were there. That's right. I found myself at a property show in London one year and discovered that there was a number of developments happening in the north of England. And so I went up to the north, I went and saw what was going on in Leeds, and I was utterly blown away. I mean, here in Leeds, there was, I think at that time, two or 300 law firms, a few hundred accountancy firms, and the finance economy was really, really doing well there. And yet there hadn't been a huge amount of developments in the city center. And also seeing what was happening in other neighboring towns and cities uh, over in Bradford, for example. And so I decided that actually, wouldn't it be better if I invested more money in the north of England than in London? So let's say, for example, I wanted to buy a flat in London and it might cost me £300,000 and it might go up by 5%. I thought, what about actually buying a number of properties in the north of England that are cheaper with the potential during that time to actually go up by 10%? And so it just made sense to me to invest in those kinds of areas. 
So you were enormously successful, and many people would no doubt look upon and say, yet again, oh, you have it all, it's all working out for you. But, of course, we know that uh, 2008 changed an awful lot. So, obviously, it went wrong for you in that sense, but it went wrong for you in other ways as well, didn't it? Yes, it was a very, very difficult time. In terms of the business, difficult because the mortgage market collapsed overnight. And so my business that was based on uh, liquidity, on the ability to borrow money easily, with that gone, how are my investors going to get the mortgages they needed to invest on the flats that they'd uh, exchanged on with me? And so I found myself in the firing line uh, in front of a number of different builders with them saying, well, look, we want, we want our money now. The building's finished. And I would be turning around to them and saying, well, how are my investors going to complete on these transactions without mortgages? And so it was a chain. And you can understand where the builders were coming from. And they were under pressure from their banks. We found a way forward. It was very, very challenging, very difficult. But there were some mortgages around for a while. And a number of my investors were able to get those mortgages. But the reality was that the profits that were meant to come in didn't come in. Because we had to almost come out of the chain, accept the fact that we weren't going to make any money and let the investors contract directly with the builders. And, and actually, a lot of the builders took a lot of cash from us by way of compromise. And we were pretty cash rich at that time. And uh, we were stripped of our cash. So you didn't collapse then as a, as a business. You were just severely pruned. We, we didn't collapse. But I suppose any value in the trading arm of the business went overnight. A company that was trading seven, over £70 million and worth a lot of money. At, at that time, there was an interested party looking at buying a share in the business. And I think it would have probably been worth you know, £20 million or, or something in that region. Well, all of that went overnight. Right. There was no value in it. Overnight, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it was yeah. gone. And, and obviously, with that, my income. Mm. But the property company, didn't. it didn't go bust. Um, and I'm thankful to God for that. But more importantly, what happened in 2008 is my son also became ill. So I've got the property company collapsing around me and my son falling ill. And he'd been hospitalized on a number of occasions with breathing difficulties. So he was a severe asthmatic and he would spend sometimes up to a week in hospital. I mean, we'd rush him into hospital. He'd be given the nebulizer. And if he didn't respond well enough, then he'd have to be kept in. You know, over four or five days of treatment, he would normally get better and then we'd take him home again. But this was our life for his early childhood. So it was a very, very severe condition. But on this particular occasion in 2008, the nebulizer failed to work and the nurses were getting extremely worried. We were getting worried because his breathing was becoming labored and they rushed him into resuscitation. And we were there with him in resuscitation we just got into the room and his airways shut down. So he, he stopped breathing. I mean, the room was full of people within, it, it felt like seconds. It must have been longer than that, but it was so fast. And the nurses uh, in there, and the doctor, they intubated him to keep him alive. And we were ushered into an adjacent room while they worked on him. How long was he in that situation? Uh, well, he was in resuscitation. He must have been there for a good number of hours. Um, it's difficult in those situations, unless you've been in one of those situations, it just hits you. I don't know how long we were there for, but it was a long time. Yeah. And the room was packed. The room was just packed with people. 
my wife and I were in the room next door, but we were allowed to go in and out, and we found ourselves collapsing to our knees in prayer. I mean, where else do you go? All the money that I'd acquired wasn't going to help in our time of need. And uh, one of the first thoughts that came to me when I was in that room was that I've sinned. I've lived a very, very sinful life because I wasn't a great husband and I wasn't a great father and I'd made money my God. Money had changed me into this arrogant person that was all focusing on myself. And so I'd lived this very sinful life. It's, it's, it's amazing that my wife had stayed with me throughout all this time. But she had. And so I thought that God had come to punish me for my sins. The first thought that came to me, well, look, this is my comeuppance. I don't think my son is going to live now. And I, I remember just weeping in that room and praying with my wife. Well, they got my son into a stable enough condition to send him to St. Thomas's in London. He was there for four days, wired up to machinery, drugs being pumped into him. The consultant seeing us regularly. And on the fourth day saying, your son is still not going to open his eyes because he suffered a huge trauma. And yet what impacted me during that time, those four days, is this Christian couple that I hardly knew that we'd recently befriended, calling us up very, very regularly, praying for us, praying for my son, Ishan, and getting their churches to pray. And I was utterly blown away by this. I'd never experienced this level of compassion and love before from people that I hardly knew. And on the fourth day, the consultant said, your son is not going to open his eyes. She did the ward round. This couple are praying and um, she does the ward round and then my son suddenly bolts upright in bed. And so we'd witnessed uh, a miracle. But actually, there was a chapel in in the hospital in St. Thomas's, and I remember having some kind of experience outside of the chapel. So there was something happening. It was, a, I suppose, a sense of that presence that I felt many, many years before in primary school. And then obviously my son bolted upright in bed, and there was this, you know, such joy and tears. And I remember turning to my wife quite quickly which is very unusual, but obviously something was drawing me to the Christian God. And I turned to my wife and I said, we must go to the church of that couple that prayed um, for our son. As soon as he's out of this hospital, let's go to that church and say thank you to that couple because my son is alive. And I held on to that promise. It's one of the first things that I did when we, when we got out. I found myself going to a church in Watford called Soul Survivor Church. And... Um, yeah, it, it all just returned very, very quickly, the message of the cross, God's grace, God's love. And I found myself walking to the front one day and committing my life to Jesus. Mm. Yes, I'm interested that you say that when your son was going through that dreadful experience, you sort of interpreted that theologically, that somehow this was God saying to you, you know, you haven't lived the, the life that you should have lived. Um, but I remember you saying somewhere that you felt it spoke to you theologically also of the fact that God had given his son Jesus for you. Did that thought, was that at the forefront of your mind, the actual sacrifice of Jesus? No, it wasn't. Not in the, not in the hospital. 
the feeling was that because I'd, I was becoming much more and more and more sinful in my life, and my life was out of control, particularly in my marriage where I was unfaithful. And so for a number of years, I was living this very, very dark and sinful life. I only realized how dark it was when I became a Christian. But the experience I had was when I walked out of church and I committed my life to Jesus, everything seemed brighter to me and I could see clearly. So it seemed like I'd been walking around in these kind of dark sunglasses for many years. That was the experience I had. But at the same time, I felt something outside of this chapel and I felt God reaching out through the prayers of that Christian couple. I didn't think about the cross, but I suppose in all of that, I had hope that God actually still cared and could do something, and he did something. Hmm. So the realisation of what Jesus had done for you came later, in the weeks afterwards when you were going to that church and uh, you, you, you were continuing to pray to God and, and uh, thinking about all the things that had happened. It was then that you later you made that commitment and you came to that realisation of just how much God had done for you. That's right, yes. I was utterly broken by the message of the cross, for about six months, I wept in the church. And this is a man that would never weep, that had no time for anybody, uh, who, who wouldn't cry about anything. And then suddenly I find myself becoming a Christian and couldn't comprehend the love of God. Why would God forgive a wretched sinner like me? Why would God be willing to be nailed to a cross? How do you... Well, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to understand that. And I want to always weep. It's the fuel that drives me to serve him for all he's done for me. Well, indeed, I don't suppose we will ever fully understand the heart of God. I don't see how we could possibly do that. We can just rejoice in the fact that this is the nature of God to reach out for us and uh, give himself for us. But you are obviously very, very changed by this experience. Um, how would you generally describe that? I mean, you've talked about walking from darkness into light, but more practically, what sort of things changed for you? Well, my whole life changed in that single moment. Everything from the way I ran my business, because suddenly it wasn't my business anymore. This business was now God's business. I'd given my life to God. So many changes happened, and so quickly, I found myself apologizing to a lot of people, to family members, particularly my wife being very open and honest about the fact that I'd not always been faithful, which um, I felt God calling me to do because I couldn't actually build my marriage based on the fact that I'd been lying for so many years. And so there was a lot of apologies, a lot of sorries. I was horrified by the way that I'd been as a father, that I didn't spend any time with my children. I remember my children being elated one day because we were on holiday and we watched a DVD together. And they said that was the best day that we had had. And then it suddenly dawned upon me, well, I never really spent much time watching DVDs with them before. But that was the best day, being inside our cottage on holiday watching a DVD. And have other members of your family also seen the change in you and been attracted to Jesus as well? I keep on praying that my family will come to faith in Jesus. Mm. Yesterday I was driving back from Southampton from a meeting I'd had there with some church leaders and driving back and crying out to the Lord, when will my parents believe? Uh, it's a big burden that I carry 
for my family. Mm. My mother thought that I might have joined some kind of cult when I became a follower of Jesus (laughs) because the change was very dramatic and everybody's conversion experience is very, very different. For me, it was I walked into church as one man and I walked out as another man with big changes to my character. And it wasn't just my mother that had to get used to my new character, but it was my wife as well. My mother came to church just to make sure that I wasn't part of some kind of cult, and that reassured (laughs) her. It must have been difficult for them to adjust to, because, especially for my father, because I finally embraced the Christian faith, and we debated about this for many years. And he's now become much more devoted to Hinduism. But what is nice is my parents have been supportive of me. And as Hindus, Hindus generally believe that all roads lead to God. And so they believe that Christianity is one of the pathways to God. Though I think in their hearts they would prefer it if I was still a Hindu. Yes, I guess so. But uh, yes, I suppose that relieves the tension in, in their way of looking at things a little, yeah. Yes. Okay, well, I'd love to talk about your particular approach to ministry these days. And, of course, you're heavily involved in uh, ministry in various ways, but most of all with South Asian Forum of the Evangelical Alliance. And you have this course that you direct called Jesus Through Asian Eyes that I mentioned at the top of the show. Lots of things I want to ask you about this, but could we start with an overview of what that's basically about? How does it seek to help people? Well, the course started out as a, as a booklet, first of all, that was launched in 2011 called Jesus Through Asian Eyes, which answered some of the big questions that Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs have about Christianity and about Jesus. And what we did is we we contacted a number of churches that reach out to the South Asian community and asked them, look, what are the big barriers? What are the big questions that they have? And essentially, we put that into a booklet. And that booklet did extremely well. So it's a booklet that you'd give away as you've built relationships with Asian people, if they have questions about Christianity, misconceptions that need clarifying. You know, simple questions like, is Christianity a Western religion? For many Asians, the first question wouldn't be, does God exist? Because to them, God does exist. But the perceptions of many South Asians, not all, but many, is that Christianity is a Western religion. And so it just clarifies the point that actually Jesus was you know, born in Central Asia, and that was really the birth of, of, of Christianity. I, I suppose it's understandable in a way, because I get the impression, say, with, um, you know, many Hindus would think of Hinduism as part and parcel of just being Indian. And, you know, thinking of uh, people from an Islamic background often tend to think in more theocratic terms. So I guess it seems quite understandable they'd think that Western Christianity, those two things go together. Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the big misconceptions. So that's why we wanted to address these misconceptions and answer any questions that they might have. I mean, for example, <laughs> the big question that I get from a number of Hindus is, uh, you know, why do Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to reach God? Or from Muslims, you know, the big discussion point is, um, well, I suppose to do with how can God have a son, for example? And so you've got all these uh, discussion points. Or, for example, is the Bible trustworthy? Many Muslims would argue it isn't trustworthy. So this booklet was there to address these questions and clarify points. And then what we discovered is that, yes, the booklet was good. Yes, you could give it away. You could have some discussion around it. But there wasn't any kind of structured discussion around these questions. Now, what if Asians of other faiths want to discuss these points 
further. And so that's how the course came about. And so a new booklet was developed. And then out of that, we built an eight-week course. And each week, we look at two questions from the booklet. It's not a complicated course. There's no DVD with it, nothing like that. It is very, very informal. It gives an opportunity for those of other faith backgrounds to share their perspective and just to have open and honest discussion. Right. So when you say it's structured, then I mean that immediately that word can give the impression that it, it is quite didactic. But for looking at the video on your website, certainly the people who've been on the course seem to give the impression that well, it's not like that at all. It's, as you say, it's very open, and they they talk about it being very friendly, and people can share their questions. There's nothing confrontational about it. It's also just kind of a chat with questions being brought up and answered in honest ways. Is that how you want it to feel? I presume. Exactly. The leader's manual will explain that you can run this as an eight-week course and it will give some guidelines as to how the discussion could potentially go in a session. But the reality is it can go mm. however <laughs> however the uh, conversation leads. And if it goes yeah. uh, into, into a different area of discussion, then that's fine. Because the great thing is it's bringing people together mm. to discuss in a friendly setting those things that they want to discuss they might not necessarily get an opportunity some people might not actually run it as an eight-week course they might just pick out one particular question that they want to discuss and uh, do that over coffee and costa coffee or something like that yeah it doesn't need to be done in a church setting or anything like that so the questions that people are bringing are really valued obviously so how do you do this balance then between respecting people's questions and yet getting over the christian truths because you know i could see how easily this could turn into a kind of anything goes situation where you know you mustn't oh no that's somebody's valid question we, we mustn't uh, you know tell them what the answer is you know how, how do you deal with that balance i think the key thing in all of this is this is all about building friendships and loving our neighbors. And that's really, really important. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian. Why? Because someone reached out as a genuine friend concerned for the welfare of my son. They didn't share the good news message to me straight away. They just loved us and they cared for us. And over time, they shared about their faith. And then I became a follower of Jesus. And that's really got to be the starting point for Christians reaching out to South Asians. Mm -hmm. We love God and we're called to love our neighbors. So let's build these friendships and let's have conversations with them. Let's invite them into our homes. Let's be hospitable. And over the course of time, God willing, we'll have opportunities to have conversation. And so that's really the basis of this course is, is friendships. That's where we're starting. Mm -hmm. All right, so there, there isn't that sense of, you know, this sort of postmodern idea of tolerance where you've got to fully respect what anybody says, whatever they believe and that kind of thing. It, it is, presumably, you, could, you do have these cases where you say, well, we agree to differ. We actually believe different things. We've been open about the different things that we believe and they are intention and we, we live with that and we're friendly in, in that situation. Yes, absolutely. And I think we've got to adopt that kind of approach. I'm just thinking, for example, my aunt who sadly passed away after I became a Christian. Well, she came to church on a number of occasions and she was a Hindu, but she was fascinated by the God that I prayed to and she felt there was power when Christians prayed for her. But she wasn't prepared to give up her Hindu faith. Yes, so she heard the Christian message very, very clearly that as Christians, you know, I believe that Jesus is the only way. 
that there is one mediator and that mediator is Jesus. But everything I shared was done in a sensitive way and a respectful way that, yes, she was in her right to have her own belief. But she came to church on a number of occasions um, before she sadly passed away. Well, I'm delighted that actually some years on from that, her daughter, who came to church on, I think, one or two occasions, well, she contacted me, I think, about nine months ago to say that she'd encountered other Christians and she now wants to become a follower of Jesus. And so we've got to walk in step with the Spirit. Only God can open hearts, but we've got to do all that we can to share good news, not just through what we say, but also through deed as well and the way that we love people. Mm. Because I've not experienced the course myself. I've only seen the video and the kind of descriptions that are out there. But I'm trying to imagine what actually happens. You come and you sit down and you're shaking hands with people and you've got a cup of coffee or whatever it is. And then you're presumably invited at some point to articulate what you think and what you think about Jesus, about Christianity, because you talk about misconceptions that people have. So people are sharing what they think and some of those things will be right, some of those things will be wrong. How do you tease apart in conversation the things that people have right about Jesus and things that people have wrong about Jesus? Well, I think it's it's absolutely fine to sensitively clarify points if you're a Christian. But the aim of these discussions is to give an opportunity for everybody to express their point of view. And so actually, I would advise a, a lot of the time that some of those that are leading the discussion actually need to hold back. Mm-hmm. Just let the discussion flow even if it's not quite flowing the way that you'd like it to flow let it flow because the most important thing is that there's a group of people in a room that want to be there and they want to have a conversation and so the last thing you want to do is to be alienating people by coming on heavy very very quickly and saying well you know this is what we believe and before you know it you've got a heated discussion and nobody really wants to meet again and this has been a big learning process for me to understand that in many individuals it takes time in my case it took over 20 years a lot of people had conversations with me over the 20 years about the christian faith and then finally i made that commitment just to give you an idea of of how this course progresses so so the first session would cover what is Christianity and then it would move on to how can we relate to God and so the person of Jesus comes into it. Discussion three is how do I know that God loves me so it's expanding once again. I see so you do actually have some definite content then as you're working through the course it's not just a a free-for-all with different opinions being shared there is some definite minimal but definite doctrinal content. Yes, and because the discussion is based on the booklet, so the way it works is that you would read the answers to the questions in the booklet. You read that as a group, and then there's a leader's guide which gives you some questions that you can ask to initiate some conversations. But one's got to be prepared that actually the conversation might not always go in that particular way and just to be open that actually if if there's good discussion and it moves on moves on somewhere else then that's absolutely fine and if you can come back then that's great and if you can't don't worry about it and 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 it moves on the course moves on uh, so session four is their life after death discussion five is who is jesus Mm. discussion six is jesus the only way to reach god 
massive discussion for, uh, especially if there's Hindus in the room. Discussion seven, is the Bible reliable? Well, for many Hindus, the Bible is reliable. Well, it's a holy book. They will respect it. Many Hindus will even come into church, pray to Jesus. But the big issue for many Hindus is, is Jesus the only way to God? But for Muslims, is the Bible reliable? Well, that's a big thing that they would want to discuss. And discussion eight, what would need to change if I follow Jesus? And that's really, really crucial to get the point across that actually you don't need to change many aspects of your culture. What you wear, what you eat, the importance of family, hospitality, all these things that you've you know, that you have in your culture will look retain those. And what changes is your faith in God. But I'm guessing there must be some cases in which it would, in fact, be very difficult to follow Jesus, that you would need to go against some aspects of your culture. That must be true in some cases and presumably be quite difficult for people. Yes, and I suppose there are difficulties, of course. Um, I mean, one of the questions that I had when I became a Christian is, well, do I go to the temple now? You know, if my parents ask me to come to the temple, what is going to be my response to that? Or if they've got a religious function at home, am I going to attend? And having given a lot of thought on this, I will quite happily go into one of those settings out of respect for my parents. But where it stops is is to then participate. I won't participate in any religious activity. But going there and respecting my parents and respecting their faith, yes, I have no problem. Mm. And And what's amazing is that as you go into these sort of situations, you do end up having conversations with people. Yes, I am a follower of Jesus. This is what I believe, but I do respect your faith background. And so that's yeah. great. You can have those kind of conversations. Mm. I suppose I'm thinking that one of the sticking points with the course, as I'm trying to imagine it here, would be the claim that one should follow Jesus, especially in some new way, in some Christian way, because, I mean, I would have thought that the Hindu would say, well, you know, that's fine, Jesus is an avatar of some sort, you know, a certain way of of appreciating God, and the Muslim might say, well, we already believe in Jesus, he's Isa in in the Quran, so he's a great prophet. How would you get past those kinds of barriers to understanding that it's necessary to embrace Jesus in a, in a full way? Well, I've had, I've had lots of conversations and referred to various scriptural passages that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. As Christians, we can quote a lot of passages from the Bible. But I've come to the conclusion that actually there's nothing that I can really do to get someone to become a follower of Jesus, that that is really something that only God can do. Mm. And so one of the key things that we emphasize is to be reliant on the Holy Spirit, to be in prayer all the time, to pray for those people that we want to see come to faith in Jesus, and then to be led by the Holy Spirit in our conversations and our prayer life. And over the course of time, the prayer is that God will open their hearts. I've shared so much with my mother in terms of Bible passages. And as far as she's concerned, well, I do believe in Jesus. I'll come to your church. I'll even accept prayer. But don't tell me that Jesus is the only way. However, what I have discovered is that when I am praying more, my mother is more open to the Christian message. Hmm. I remember praying one night. This was at a time when I really wanted her to come to church. And I walked in to work the following morning. And she was there. And she said, Manoj, can I come to church on Sunday? Time and time again, God does remind me, yes, 
go out, share good news, love your families, love your neighbours, but depend on me completely. And another thing that comes over very strongly is that you stress that Christianity is essentially a relationship rather than a badge of cultural identity. And I'm wondering, do you think that that stress on the relationship with God connects back to your very early experience of seeing that expression of Christianity way back in your, your primary school, perhaps the head teacher who you were most struck by? You, you said you saw him singing there and you were aware that the God was in his life. Do you, do you think that's influencing uh, the way you're, you're doing ministry? Well, I, I, I suppose I came to the conclusion, you know, when I became a Christian, one of the things that I reflected on was, well, if God is real, then we should be able to experience him. And so if people have a faith in God and are not experiencing him, then is there something wrong? And what I experienced, obviously, with the headmaster was the fact that this man had an intimate relationship with God. But there's many people that can be going to church but it's more religion than relationship. It's more ritual. But this is one of the fascinating aspects of this course. You know, the question of uh, how can we have a relationship with God? And what I've discovered, which is incredible, is how open those from different faith backgrounds are to receiving prayer in the name of Jesus. Just give you a very, very quick story. A gentleman that I don't know very well who works in an Indian restaurant not far from me ended up in Costa Coffee and I was there doing some work and we ended up having a discussion. I was just sharing a little bit about the kind of work I'm involved in as a Christian and he was a Hindu. And I said, look, if you're interested, why don't you come to church next week, Sunday? Um, he was going through some issues in his life and I said, you know, you might find it helpful. And uh, he decided that he wanted to come. Not only did he come, but he was fascinated about the prayer time at the end where people could go to the front and receive prayer. And I think what I've discovered over the course of time is that most Hindus and most Muslims will accept prayer in the name of Jesus. Hindus because they believe that Jesus is, is, is one of the ways to God and Muslims because they respect Jesus as a prophet. And often it is during those times of prayer that they experience something of God's love for them. And it's often that which actually draws them close. And so I always, always encourage people, build friendships with Asians. And if they, over the course of time, find out about the things that they might want prayer for and ask them, can I pray for you? I can pray for you, you know, in my home by myself. Or if you want me to, I can pray for you right now. And I don't think I've found one person yet not accept prayer in the name of Jesus. Is that so? Yeah, I that, don't that, think That's so. remarkable. I, I wouldn't have thought that, yeah. I, ca- I can't think of a single person. Mm. And uh, in fact, I can't think of a single Asian person of another faith background that is not open to having a conversation about Christianity mm. as well. Yeah, so that was really interesting because that means that when you're praying like that, you are putting yourself in the situation where you're directly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to act in whichever way that he wants to. And you, you stress the importance of being open to the Holy Spirit in everything that this ministry is doing. Yes, we need to be mindful of the fact that Christianity is on the rise in Asia already. God is already moving there in countries like China and India and so forth. And so if God is already moving amongst the Asian community, his heart is that all are saved, then surely he's moving amongst the Asian community here in the UK as well. And that people like me that come from a Hindu background are suddenly finding ourselves having these big experiences of Jesus and becoming followers of Jesus. Mm. 
Well, I want to ask you a question. I don't, I don't want it to be misunderstood in the, in the way I ask it. So, um, you know, I'm going to ask you, you know, what kind of success is this course having? But I don't want to talk in terms of, of numbers or anything like that, because as you say, it's a little bit difficult to quantify because it's an ongoing process. But nevertheless, you know, what kind of uh, reaction has there been? Have you found people come to Christ through this? Yes, um, there have been people from Hindu, Muslim and Sikh background that have come to faith in Jesus. But I have no idea of the kinds of numbers that have, unless churches or individuals share that information with us. It's very difficult. But it's also a course that's only been out since May 2014. So it's not even two years yet. And I believe a course like this could be going, hopefully, for many, many, many years to come. Right. So when I heard you speak at New Wine then, it was literally new. It was off the printing press. Precisely, yes. Right. It just it had just come out. I, I got sent a text message from someone the other day who said that they were using the course as part of their home group. I know of another church that are actually running the course in their normal church service. And I know of another church in Belfast that have been running the course with international students, although they adapted quite a lot of it. And that's something that we do encourage, just adapted, a bit like how people will adapt the Alpha yeah. course. Has it been used in other areas of the world as well? It's been launched in the States and Australia. I haven't had major right. feedback other than the fact that it's out there now and the course is being bought by people, not in huge quantities. The majority of the sales are happening through the UK. But our, our hope and prayer is that it will gradually find itself into other countries as well. Mm. We've just signed the rights with the publisher to take it into other countries and to see if translations can happen. Mm. Because there isn't really anything else out there that I know of quite like this that can be used with both South Asian, Central Asian and East Asian communities as well. And I would have thought that over the course of the next 10 years here in the UK, particularly when we look to the census figures that will come out in 2021, I think it would be interesting to see how many Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs there are in this country. And I would have thought at that point, a lot of churches will be thinking that they need to do much more work in this particular area of engaging with the South Asian community. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really exciting, actually, what's going on. I'd be fascinated to see how this progresses. You say it's only a a year or so old, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it does actually develop over the next decade or so. Um, I do hope it continues, of course, to grow. Um, And I think there may well be people who are interested in finding out about the course, perhaps even getting a copy of it. So how do they best contact you to get a copy of it? Well, you can get uh, all the resources from the Good Book Company, the publishers of the course. They also publish Christianity Explored, and we're very thankful to the Christianity Explored team who helped us as we were putting this course together and gave us lots of very, very good advice. But we have a website, which is www.discovering-jesus.com, and on that website, you can see videos of people that have done the course and information on how you can buy the resources. So either from that website or go to the Good Book Company. So I know the Good Book Company does a sample pack as well. So you can buy a copy of the booklet, um, the leader's guide, and a participant's guide. I think it's for £10, mm-hmm. um, a sample pack. 
And people may want, I did mention it, of course, your book, Filthy Rich, may want to get a copy of that. So uh, do you want to say something about that book as well and how perhaps people can get a copy easily? Yeah, so Filthy Rich is obviously my testimony of coming to faith, and that is available from Christian bookshops and online retailers like Amazon, and it's been launched in the States and in Australia as well. It's not the full title, is it? Filthy Rich, I've lost the title. What was it? Can you remind us what it was? Um, the Property Tycoon Who Struck Real Gold. Oh, that's it, right, yeah. Well, great. Uh, well, thank you ever so much, Manoj, for coming on. Your life story itself is fascinating enough in its own right, but uh, then to hear about how that really informed the way that you approach ministry is really interesting. And as I say, I am very much looking forward to seeing how this course continues to develop over the coming years and to learning about the fruit of it. And I do hope that people who are listening today will be interested to find out more and perhaps even in their own way, in their own context, if it's appropriate to use this resource. So thank you ever so much for developing it and putting it out there for people and for sharing this with us today it's been really really interesting thanks very much thank you very much is there a way that people could get in touch with you personally if they wanted to i think the ways to connect with me would be through the two ministries that i'm involved in they can either go to the south asian forum website so that's southasianforum.co.uk or if they're interested in publishing anything, then to go to instantapostle.com, which is the Christian publishing house that I'm involved in. Yes, indeed. I did mean to ask you about that, because that's a slightly different kind of project, isn't it? In fact, it's different from what you might think a publisher would be, because isn't there something about it being more of a conversation in some sense, rather than simply a publishing outlet? Well, it does allow opportunities to respond quickly to issues, current issues. So, for example, we've got a book coming out on the migrant crisis. So, Instant Apostle has the ability to publish material very quickly, even pamphlets within a matter of days. And what that enables is to comment on things that are happening in the world at the moment, to offer a Christian perspective, and then hopefully to engage in some conversations. But we publish you know, a very wide range of material, Christian life and mission, autobiographies, fiction, children's fantasies, all kinds of stuff. It's a publishing house that's based around prayer. So we don't always look at the commercial viability. I know this sounds crazy coming uh, as a businessman. But um, but you're changed. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Well, I, I do believe it's a God thing and that God will ensure that there's enough money and has ensured that there's always enough money to do what we're called to do. But we're open to some very, very niche kind of books might not sell huge quantities however Mm. the kingdom impact of them could be huge and so we want to be prayerful about what we publish and uh, just trust in the lord wow that's very exciting as well it is very clear to me that you are thinking very differently than you must have thought (laughs) in your the earlier part of your life and that god has changed very much in your life Um, that you're thinking in this kingdom way rather than in just the how can this be successful kind of way so that is very interesting indeed again thank you ever so much for coming on it's been delightful to speak to you thanks very much manoj thank you very much